Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Believe in Guardians. As always, I'm your host, Amari McPherson, and this week I am have the pleasure to welcome Ethan from uh, Waiting for Next Year. I've had him on the podcast before, long list of good guests that I've had, so I decided to invite him back. Uh, so yeah, Ethan, thank you again so much for coming on. As always, thanks for having me around. It's uh, It's been a while. I actually think you had me on for last offseason. I think we did something pretty similar to this. Yeah, it, it was. It's been a while, and then of course, with my schedule the way it's been stretched out, I'm like it, it's gotten a lot longer than than I anticipated. But like I said, glad to have you back on. You were a great guest, long line of guests that you know. I, I always say the guests that I invite are smarter than me, so I always try to get you know other people's opinions because nobody wants to hear me ramble for a half hour. So I like to have other people on. So I'm the guy that comes in to reset the bar and keep it low. I got you. <laughs> I don't know about. Keep it low. I'm doing that pretty good myself. But I mean, <laughs> you want to talk about keeping the bar low. That's certainly what the Cleveland Guardians are doing. Um, lack of spending. I mean, that's always a, a hot topic whenever you talk about the team and free agency. And, you know, they don't really make big splash in trades. Um, very rare. But um, speaking of free agency, we did bring back Austin Hedges, who seems to be a fan favorite, you know, shirtless Austin Hedges. And uh, correspondent move, we released um christian bethencourt who uh we had signed just weeks prior who personally for me i thought was a a good backup to have for bo naylor i know austin hedges he brings you know he's a little bit older has more uh major league experience under his belt um certainly one of the best defensive catchers i mean we've seen that up close and personal um but you know the thing about bethencourt he he brings more offense he's a little bit more versatile he has experience playing first base as well. I mean, not that we really need too many people playing first base because we already have a log jam over there as it is. But just wanted to get your thoughts on re-signing Hedges and then releasing Bethacore as well uh, to kind of set up that one-two punch. As we already know, Naylor should be the opening day starter at catcher. First, I'm going to backtrack for a second to to your lead into this. And I, I'm I'm going to say that I'm disappointed in you. That we were talking about keeping the bar low, and you did not segue into saying that Cleveland's biggest acquisition so far has been reliever Scott Barlow. Uh, you see, I didn't, it wasn't even on my mind, man. That, well, that's why I bring people like you on. <laughs> well, I digress. I know everybody's champing at the bit to hear me laud Austin Hedges, who I know a team strapped for money four million dollars to a backup catcher seems like a stretch. And everybody really liked the idea of Christian Bethencourt when the Guardians originally acquired him because he was an offensive catcher who does a really good job controlling the run game. And that's something that many fans and the team itself felt was lacking a little bit last year. To their own faults, that's what happens when you took a $6 million risk on Mike Zunino coming back from thoracic outlet surgery. But it's a new era. I think the main thing that you need to understand about Austin Hedges is that what he brings to the Guardians in 2024 is not going to show up in the stat sheet or his cap hit, right? He is, I I think I can argue this with just about anyone who covers any team in baseball, even some of the national guys, that Austin Hedges is the smartest, most effective game caller behind the plate of any catcher in the league. I think he's proven that time and time again. He's an elite pitch framer. That's where he makes up for his lack of offense and not controlling the run game as well as he could. But what really, really sells me on this one is that Hedges is going to be so, so, so invaluable to every young arm on this pitching staff. You're going to have second-year pitchers in Logan Allen, Gavin Williams, and Tanner Bybee being handled by Austin Hedges, who does an insane amount of prep he's renowned for what he does for pitchers there's never been a pitcher that has a bad thing to say about him and on the flip side you have a guy who can make snap in-game decisions and manage the game for you while giving valuable input to rookie manager steven vote i really love what the guardians have done by just surrounding vote with bright young minds right like kai correa is coming in 
uh, was previously with the organization, but now he's coming back to do infield coach. And he's not the third base coach, is he? I believe I we have somebody different for that. Um, um, yeah, I believe you're right. Yeah. Uh, but Craig Alvernaz, uh, Stephen Vogt's longtime friend, is now his bench coach. They've just done a really good job of surrounding him with guys that are wealth of knowledge people that will give him plenty of opportunities and can help with the game stuff while he keeps the locker room in check and slowly settles into the day-to-day of being a major league manager. And and I think Hedges contributes to that just as much as any of the coaching staff does. Yeah, I think someone like Hedges, just to piggyback off of what you're talking about, someone that is his leadership, and plus he just just came off a World Series win as well. So he knows what it takes to win. He's one before, um, like I said, just that leadership, and he's one of the best behind the plate. Um, stat Statcast actually has uh, a couple of his stats. His uh, framing value is 13, which is a 98th percentile amongst all major league catchers. His fielding run value is uh, 15, which is the 99th percentile among all major league catchers as well. Um, but I want to point one thing out because I feel like it's it could be a trivia question. So we signed him for $4 million, which is twice as much uh what Shohei Otani is going to make this season um if you just want to throw that out there which is like I said is going to could be a, a bit of a trivia question gonna do so big spenders <laughs> yeah but even at four million four million dollars like I said his leadership is definitely going to be invaluable to someone who you hopefully you know hope is going to be around for the long haul 10 plus years and and Bo Naylor somebody you can build around and we've already seen um, him kind of settle into being that everyday catcher. He hit well over 300 over the last couple weeks uh, of, of, of last season and really kind of settled in at the plate as well. Uh, didn't look like he was overmatched like he was previously. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm i okay with the move. I thought it was a little bit confusing at first, especially before the news came out that we were uh, moving on from Bethancourt. I thought having three catchers like that was weird, especially when you take into account that David Fry, who is also has experience behind the plate is still around as well. I just thought that there was going to be another log jam at a position where there doesn't need to be. There's only so many people you can carry back there. But once the news came out with Bethancourt, um, I was okay with it. So, I mean, like I said, I I think that uh, it'll be invaluable to have him on the team, somebody who can come in and, and give Naylor a spell once he needs it because he's still young, of course. So, um, I'm okay with it. I mean, office isn't there, but everything else is. And you have to kind of bank on the fact that Cleveland's internal projection system is probably showing it. And I know the, the fan zips projections came out today as well. There's probably a lot just as it was with zips of positive regression to the mean that they expect in 2024 plus contributions from some of the other young guys, especially a pitching staff that's poised to take a leap. So you know, 2023 was weird in a lot of ways, um, but I definitely think they can get back to that 2022 form where they have enough guys contributing that two days a week you can afford to have a black hole in the ninth spot for Austin Hedges to catch Shane Bieber and maybe Gavin Williams, right? Yeah, absolutely. We've seen him kind of be that PC for for pitchers such as Bieber. My only thing for me is, I mean, it's only one year. I'm not really trying to project out into the future too much. I mean, Austin Hedges isn't that old. He's only coming into his age 31 season. Um, but I just wonder what the future looks like if if you want to keep him around for the long haul to kind of be that backup and mentor to Naylor, who, again, is still so young and trying to come into his own as a catcher. Because as we know, catchers, they're typically the last uh, among any position on the field to kind of really take reign of their position just because of how demanding it is. Definitely. It, it's hell on the knees. There's so many intricacies that you have to learn while trying to keep up with the physicality of the game. And yeah, I, I, Hedges has come into his own as a catcher, never really developed with the bat. Yeah. And what's weird is that he's actually gotten worse. I'm looking at his numbers right now from 2021. He did hit 10 home runs. Um, he hit only 178, but he slugged 308, and it seemed to just kind of fall off a cliff from there, as we saw during his last season here, hitting 163. Uh, he slugged 248, and then last year hit only one home run, but like I said, won a World Series, so you kind of take what you get from it. But um, as we know, if you are a great defensive catcher, the offense doesn't really matter. We've seen that over and over again, and bringing back a backup catcher at $4 million in Cleveland certainly speaks to that as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but um, we'll move on to another 
signing uh Ben Lively who last played in Cincinnati uh his stats last season he was four and seven with the 538 ERA um so not you know not spectacular right but it does give you another arm that you can use especially for a young um not a young man well he is a young manager but an inexperienced manager um that will have uh he's only 31 years old Ben Lively is um, what do you think of that signing? Because it's not like we said, it's not a splash for his career. He's eight and 17. At this point, it really just is about depth because we seem to to lack that depth. Um, but when you're signing someone who before last season hadn't played since 2019, um, it really does kind of make you scratch your head a little bit. I don't have any issues with the signing. Um, I think the only head scratching part of this deal is that they, just gave him an outright major league contract and added him to the 40 man roster. But for league minimum, 750, 760,000, whatever he's making, it, it's, it's a no risk, potentially all reward deal for the guardians. Significantly less risky than Mike Zunino was last year, significantly less risky than Josh Bell turned out to be, even though he started mashing in Miami the second he left Cleveland. I don't know what was up with that. Yeah. That was but, unfortunate to watch. You know, I I saw some rampant speculation when this happened that, you know, uh, the Shane Bieber trade is imminent. We've got this guy to replace him. I don't think that was ever the case. Lively to me, and, and this is purely speculation, right? Like, we're just two guys on a podcast who have followed this team for a long time and like to think we know how they operate sometimes. But Lively was originally drafted by the Guardians in 2010 in the 26th round. So there is some history of somebody in that organization having scouted him they probably see something in him that they can tweak. He's a command first guy. He's never going to blow you away with a fastball, but that's what Cleveland loves. They take guys who can already command their arsenal well, and they do something to them or they game plan effectively for them. And they turn these guys into just better effective pitchers. See Aaron Savali, see Josh Tomlin, right? So there's probably something in here that they see as potential for, your sixth starter for those rainy double headers or your emergency bullpen guy if Logan Allen gets rocked in two and two thirds and you need somebody to go three innings just to save the bullpen. He's probably more likely insurance for Cody Morris and Hunter Gaddis than he is anybody in the starting rotation. But I think if this guy gets you 60 innings of four, four and a half ERA baseball, he's more than earned this contract. Yeah, and even that would be an improvement over what he's done recently. And um, I actually agree with you um, because if Cleveland sees something, we know the the quote unquote pitching factory, um, and even the, the social media team uh, trademark pitching factory because of how good they are. Um, if they can see something, especially with the pitching coach uh, like Carl Willis, then you know should we really give them the benefit of the doubt? I, and I, I think we should. Um, you just kind of hope that it works out. Like you said, it's it's a low risk, hopefully uh, a moderate reward. And like I said, it, it seems more to be about depth because of the injuries that we had and just the, the relative youth that we have amongst our starters and the rotation as well. Somebody who has been around for a little bit um, is a veteran and can, you know, navigate a major league lineup, hopefully. And it is worth noting that even though he is 31, he has spent some time overseas pitching in the KBO. He does still have a minor league option. So maybe a little bit of roster flexibility at some point in the season with Ben Lively. Okay. I like that. Yeah. But I, I like what you said about that six starter. He could definitely be kind of that spot starter, that long reliever if needed. Um, make him a little bit more versatile. Uh, you don't have to exactly start him every five days, especially if he isn't performing up to code, if you will. But you you spoke about Shane Bieber. Um, I feel like I could talk about Shane Bieber every episode on here, and I, you know it's it's really like beating a dead cat, beating a dead cat, beating a dead horse. Sorry, I have a cat, and she just walked past me. Anyway, um, my point being, there have been uh, the rumors have sparked back up about trading Shane Bieber. Oh, this team wants him. This team's looking at him. I, I, for me, it's gotten to a point where I really don't follow it anymore just because like you said we're just two guys on a podcast who think we know things and we're not in the front office so what do we really know and so for me it it really doesn't make sense for me to kind of dwell on it i think for me if they trade him then they trade him i don't know when that's going to be if they 
let him play out his final year here. I'll certainly be a fan of it because I like Bieber and I think he's still pretty good. Um, but I just want to get your thoughts on what do you think is going to happen with Shane Bieber because the uh, rumors have sparked back up. And just as recently, um, I think it was a couple of days ago, I think I saw on um, Bleacher Report, they had him going to the Giants for two prospects. And like I said, nobody really knows. It, it's just really speculation at this point. And all we can do really is just sit and wait. Yeah, you you make a, I, I mean, truer words are not going to be spoken on this podcast. Is that all we can do is sit here and wait. But, you know, one thing we do know as two guys on a podcast is that the Cleveland Guardians organization does not leak. They do not let out information in any way, shape, or form that they don't want the public having. There's been some small whispers that somebody's probably spoon-feeding Paul Hoynes at Cleveland.com about they've dangled Shane Bieber, Emmanuel Quasse, Josh Naylor to kind of gauge some interest, but those are still trades that they're really floating out there in any scenario where they need that this turns our 2024 prospects around immediately type return, you know, Bieber to a lesser extent, because he is a true one-year rental. I don't think that the guardians are going to move Shane Bieber this off season. I just don't think this is when his maximum value is. Now let me backtrack and say that no matter how Shane Bieber leaves the Cleveland guardians in this calendar year, there will be value out of it, right? They're either going to trade him this offseason for cash and some prospects to bolster the farm and areas of need for the next two, three years as they try to open this window back wide again. They're going to flip him at the deadline if things go south and he's healthy for a haul because his value will be maximized at that point. Or if, God willing, the team performs well, they keep him, they don't trade him in the preseason, they march all the way to the playoffs, you give him a qualifying offer, and when he turns you down, you get a draft pick out of it, right? So we've reached a point where no matter what, you're going to get something out of Shane Bieber in 2024, whether it's an actual on-field performance plus a draft pick or on-field performance and some value coming back to you in terms of depth. Great. That being said, the pitching market has been so bizarre this offseason. I've not heard a peep about National League Cy Young winner Blake Snell. Uh, obviously, all eyes are on were on Shohei Otani. He is now signed with the Dodgers, but all eyes are now on Yoshinobu Yamamoto, who, as of a few hours ago, I saw was expected to flip and make his decision between the Yankees and Dodgers before Christmas. He's at an LA Rams game with Shohei Otani. So I think until some real dominoes fall, and I think mostly Dylan Cease, right? I, I don't know if Tyler Glasnow really set Shane Bieber's market because Glasnow is kind of a broken pitcher and had to agree ahead of time to a, a I, I would extension has now $135 million. I'll tell you that yeah. much right now. So well, I yeah, it's not that far removed from TJ surgery either. Right. You know, we're talking about a guy whose career high is 140 innings and he just accomplished it last year and he's been up for six, seven years now. So I, I don't know if it, it, it wouldn't be smart for Cleveland to use Shane Bieber as a one-year rental to set the pitching market, right? They need other dominoes to start falling around them. And it just really hasn't developed. And the longer this goes, it's going to make more sense for the team to just keep him. You know, you already brought back his personal catcher. There's some incentive to keep him there too. That keeps him happy for the year. He knows he's going to hit free agency. I, I know the report surfaced with Bleacher Report during all of these, or it may have been MLB trade rumors during all of these talks that, Bieber and his representatives would be open to signing an extension wherever he's traded, if he's traded. So there's a little bit of surplus value in that sense where, you know, if you're the Blue Jays or the Cubs and you think you could sign him for three or $60 million when you get him. But I think it's all smoke and mirrors. I don't think this is when there's smoke, there's fire. I think this has all just been, Cleveland doing what Cleveland does, which is our cell phones are always on. You're going to call me, you're going to ask me, and I'm going to set an unrealistic price. You're going to tell me to go shove it, and I'm going to tell you to call me back when you're ready to go forward. And I think that's all this has been. They've probably spoken to all these teams, especially Hoynes reported and Morosi was running with it, unfortunately, that Jerry DePoto called about Josh Naylor. You know, th this is all just standard operating procedure for the guardians. They listen on everyone, but they aren't going to move if it doesn't make sense. 
Right. And you touched on uh, Shane Bieber's value, which I agree that he will have value. Um, I think the confusion for me, and I guess my question to you is, coming off of the season in which we just saw them trade one of their starting pitchers at his height when it comes to value, which certainly caused uh, a buzz amongst fans and players themselves. Uh, why didn't, or at least why do you think the organization didn't pull that trigger when Bieber's value was the highest? And, and I guess my speculation is maybe because at this point, at least uh, they know that maybe what they're going to get in return maybe is just not worth pulling that trigger or at least they'd rather just have that draft pick in the end if he leaves you know decides to sign with another get ahead of postage rate increases this year with stamps.com it's like your own personal post office sign up with promo code program for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale no long-term commitments or contracts that's stamps.com code program team I'm looking it up right now because I'm not entirely certain, but I'm pretty sure around the trade deadline this year, Bieber had, was in the middle of a two-month IL stint for an elbow issue. Yeah, and even then, his value wasn't as high as it had been previously. I mean, we've been talking about Bieber trade rumors for, what, two years now, maybe? At least a year and a half. Yeah, I, I I think Bieber kind of hit a brick wall last year because of the elbow issue. We'd seen sort of this renaissance in him that Clayton Kershaw retooling on the fly into a finesse doesn't have the 94 to 95 mile an hour fastball to blow by guys anymore and is relying on a cutter slider combo. It was effective for a time, but when Bieber gets hit now, he gets hit hard and he's prone he to get knocked around sometimes, but... I think the bigger thing last year was that the trade deadline market in 2023 set itself up to be one of the most bizarre and overinflated markets I think we've seen in a decade. You know, there were, there were some trades for some players who I don't think were worth it. Cleveland definitely gave up less for Andrew Miller during their World Series run in 2016 at the deadline, right? So it was bizarre to me that they didn't try to move him, but I don't think anybody was willing to to bite that apple, right? The Rangers really only went after Max Scherzer because the Mets were willing to pay for him and, and he mm -hmm. was injured and all of that. So I think when Tampa called about Aaron Savale and they said, we're going to give you a, a top 50 prospect in baseball, they just said, yeah, we're not going to get that for Shane right now. Take Savale. Right. Yeah, I just like I said, it, it's just come to a point where it, it for me, it just kind of makes no sense to kind of dwell on it. It, it. If it happens, it happens. And if it doesn't, like I said, I don't think I'll really have any qualms about it. It just we'll see. I don't know. Um, but it certainly still um, causes a buzz, I'll say, on Twitter, because you do get people talking about it pretty much every day on who they think he'll go to be traded to what will, you know, get a return, what kind of value he has and, you know, what the alternative will be if we just let him play him out, you know, play it out and, and just leave. Um, so I don't really know. Yeah. That's and that's what's so hard for us as fans, right? Because we obviously have this attachment to Shane Bieber. He won a Cy Young here. There was talk his first two, two and a half years in the league that he might be the greatest pitcher of his generation before yeah. injuries robbed that of him. And, and there's definitely still some of that nostalgia in me where I think back to 2019 and, and his dominant COVID 2020 season where I'm like, man, this dude really could have been one of the all-time greats before he had to really figure it out on the fly. And he went from an ace on 27 of 30 rosters to a solid number three anywhere in, in almost an instant. And it, it pains me more to see that than I think it will to see him go, just knowing what could have been, not what we could get for him. Right. Yeah. Um, moving on a little bit, you did touch on uh, Josh Naylor and, you know, teams calling about him and, and certainly Cleveland will listen to anybody, which I think can cause a scare. And I've seen people comment on it, uh, you know, on Twitter, uh, you know, Josh Naylor's not going anywhere. They better not trade him. And I certainly agree. I am for Josh Naylor remaining here as long as possible. Um, there have been talks about uh, an extension, and by talks, I mean among fans, because we want him to be extended after last year. Uh, I guess my question to you is, do you see that extension coming? And uh, if you do, when do you think that'll happen? Um, I don't think we can really play um, how much he'll get, especially being in Cleveland. 
Um, but I'm looking at Spotrack right now, and the average uh, annual salary for first baseman right now uh, is just under six point seven million. So um, six point seven million certain, certainly doesn't seem like a lot. It certainly seems worth paying him that based on last season. I guess you just have to see if he'll do it over again and go from there. I think the hard thing for me with Josh, and I, I, I'm in a group with a bunch of fans of, of teams all over the country, just a, a bunch of different opinions and ways of viewing baseball. And we had a really good conversation this morning when some of the Morosi stuff came up and somebody shared it in the group. And, you know, I kind of got to gauge how other people valued him across baseball. I personally don't see Cleveland trying to extend Naylor in the next 12 months. And there's a multitude of factors at play, right? Obviously all of the uncertainty about diamond sports and Cleveland getting paid or not this coming year, uh, they were due somewhere between 60 and 65 million for the 2024 year under the previous deal before the bankruptcy. Uh, but that's supposed to be settled sometime in the first two weeks of January. So they'll get some sort of cash flow for 2024. Obviously that's hindered almost all spending except for Austin hedges, go figure. Um, but the other factors that have really kind of thrown a wrench into the thoughts of a Josh Naylor extension for me are the acquisition of Kyle Manzardo, who true first baseman, highly touted prospect, still hoping that he makes the opening day roster. He's got some work to prove against lefties. If he can be an everyday batter, if he's going to be a platoon guy, obviously I'd love to have both of their bats in the lineup because Josh hits lefties and righties very well. So, you know, if you could tell me that we'd extend him as a nearly true DH and maybe a two starts or one start a week at first base kind of guy, I think I'd really be open to that. And I think the guardians would be too. But the other wrench to me is Davis and De Los Santos, who the team took in the rule five draft this year, uh, just a few weeks ago in the winter meetings out of Arizona. This is a kid from double a, I think he's 20 or 21 years old. He plays the corner infield spots and, He's not going to take playing time away from Jose Ramirez. I'll tell you that much. So, you know, he's either going to block Kyle Manzardo and have the Guardians start him in AAA in Columbus, which I think would be an absolute mistake, or there's going to be a three-man platoon at first base and somebody's going to be rotating in and out of the DH spot. So just between the internal bloat and the general market around a player like Naylor, he, he took some strides defensively at first base last year. I don't know if I trust it to be a full-time first baseman going forward for the rest of his career, but it's just a hard market for me right now to try and visualize. Cause another player who I think is worse than Naylor who just happened to have a really good year is going to get $200 million in Cody Bellinger. I'm not convinced at all that he is back. His his underlying metrics are terrifying, and I think any team that gives him 200 million is going to regret it in a year. But it, it's just such a weird thing for me to estimate right now. And without knowing how much he enjoys Cleveland, how much he enjoys the idea of playing with his brother, if it's going to be possible at all. So uh, until I have more concrete answers to everything that's happening, I just I don't see it happening. Interesting. I think you may may be the first person to say that it probably isn't going to happen, um, which I'm sure won't go over well with other people. But I mean, you certainly, you know, it makes sense what you're saying. It's it's not that I don't want them to extend Josh, right? Like this is just how recent history has taught me and how this offseason is really gone and how it shows you that they're really leaning on the crutch of the diamond settlement as their excuse to not spend. Right. When they signed on Jimenez, all of us were sitting here like do Stephen Kwan next do Josh Naylor. We thought this were start going to, we thought these were going to start rolling out one after the other, like it did in 2022 when Miles Straw, Manuel Classe and Jose Ramirez all came out within three weeks of each other. And then we've just hit this wall with spending and, Naylor's not going to be cheap. He's not going to be the most expensive player on the planet either, but like he's going to get a little bit more than you'd think. So there's just too many other factors at play for me right now. And with the front office already reluctant to spend, I just don't think you're going to see it in 2023. And you got to hope that they do enough if the reports 
that he was unhappy when the team acquired Manzardo at the deadline for his friends of all land didn't tell anyone. If those are true, then there's a little bit of mending to do. Yeah, very true. Um, I can also just think about Davison, uh, De Los Santos as well, who we just got in the rule five draft. Um, you know, he's a third baseman, but also has played a little bit of first base as well. Now, I don't exactly expect him to be in the mix. Obviously, he's only 20 years old and hasn't played above double A. But to me, it's certainly just another name to kind of add into this mix of players that you don't really know what to do with or where they're going to play, much like how we have with our middle infielders. Um, but where do you see uh, the role uh, that De Los Santos is going to play Um for the guardians, because we know since we got him in the rule five draft, we do have to have him on the roster for a certain amount of days or else he does get returned um, to Arizona. Um, so I don't know. It's like, are you going to play him? Where are you going to play him? How much are you going to play him? Um, because as we know, this team is young and we're trying to get a little bit older and have more experience and get better. But then you just add somebody like De Los Santos, who for me, I don't really see the reason why in doing it. Yeah, I'm I'm still hoping with De Los Santos that there's still something going on in the background, right? I, I think I was part of a not insignificant at all portion of Cleveland fans on social media that was fully expecting them to take a pitcher, get some bullpen help, maybe a starter, that basically that guy that they gave seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars to Ben Lively to be. But you know, you get him basically as a, a, a rental. Think of it as loaning a player in soccer, that sort of thing. I think the bigger thing that I'm really hoping for is that they somehow work out a trade with Arizona for his full rights so they can send him to AAA and get him that experience because we're really hoping that a very small sample size of games after he came off the developmental list is who he's going to be going forward. And a guy with no experience at AAA has not faced major league pitching other than maybe a stray guy getting a major league or minor league rehab rehab assignment. I don't see you playing him more than just uh, on getaway days or on Sundays or as a ninth inning pitch hitter when you just need a, a righty lefty matchup or something. I don't see a path to regular playing time for him, but that's why I worry about him blocking Kyle Manzardo, right? I want Manzardo to be up there as the other first base option alongside Naylor and in the lineup, because I believe that his bat is the real deal and will help the guardians improve offensively in 2024. But since you have to have De Los Santos on the roster, if, if you option him or do anything other than put him on the IL, you have to offer him back to Arizona. It, it's, it's just such a weird situation. So I'm really just sitting back and hoping that they're working on something in the background to, to get his full rights and, and to be able to develop him if they think that he's going to be something. Yeah. They kind of put themselves into a bind. Um, like I said, we really don't know what his, uh, his production is going to be. Uh, like I said, he's only hit as high as double a and last season in double a, he did hit 20 home runs and he slugged seven twenty eight. So there is that upside there. Um, but you know, triple A is a different beast. So you just don't really know what he's going to do, especially when he, it seems like he's going to have to learn on the fly in the majors, because like you said, he's only going to get those off days, maybe those matchups. And we've seen that with so many other young guys, especially this season. And even if they have a little bit of a, a good stretch, it seems to kind of reverse course and, you know, they kind of hit a wall and then it's like, well, what do you really do at that point? Because they're not getting everyday playtime. And how patient can you afford to be with a guy if he's not putting it together when you have a Josh Naylor and a Jose Ramirez above him on the depth chart at the two positions that he plays, right? You're, you're in a weak division. You can't afford to hand away games like you did last year. Another good point. Yeah. It's hard to develop when you're only playing, you know, once every week, maybe week and a half, you know, we've seen that from multiple players. Uh, but yeah, you actually make a great point about that because it seems like as, as a young team that's still trying to develop, maybe you can have that longer leash to kind of let them figure it out. But when you do play in a weak division and uh, we managed to finish third place last year, it, it's it, it, the division is up for grabs no matter who you are, it seems. So it's like you need to win every game. And at that point, you can't afford you have you really do have to put the best team out there every day. And I firmly believe Manzard is a part of that. So, you know, to, to be determined with Davison, we'll, we'll see. You know, if, if they do acquire his full rights, I'll, I'll be happy to have him. Um, a little sneak peek over at Waiting for Next Year. I, I do a lot of prospect writing. I make a, a 
top 30 prospects list every year. I just started 30 through 26 was published uh, on Monday. Davison cracked the list. He was Arizona's number five prospect. According to MLB.com, I have a, a little bit lower in the teens as a little teaser, but that should be up in a couple of weeks when we do get to his spot. I like it. A um, couple more things to get into before we wrap up. Uh, news came out recently that former Indians outfielder Shinsu Chu is retiring after uh, the 2024 season. He's over in Korea playing in the KBO. Um, I put it on here because I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on uh, his tenure as a Cleveland Indian. Of course, they were the Indians at the time. Um, I, for me, I feel like he's a little bit underrated, and it seems like he kind of got more consistent after he left Cleveland. Not to say that he exploded, but you know, once he got to Cincinnati and Texas, he was you know a little bit more uh, consistent. But in his years in Cleveland, uh, I was looking it up. Seven years in Cleveland, hit two ninety two, uh, hit eighty three home runs, three hundred seventy two RBI. Um, Baseball reference has his wins above average at 11.2. They have his war at 21.8 over those seven years, uh, which is the highest over, you know, any team that he's been a part of. Um, But for me, I feel like someone who, you know, he played during those lean years in Cleveland that we weren't, there wasn't much consistent success, Um, you know, not too much fighting for the division and, you know, his last year here was 2012, which is the year before we made the wild card after Ted Francona was was hired. Um, but, you know, like I said, just wanted to get your thoughts on on what you see in him and, and how you think his tenure went uh, in a Cleveland uniform. I would argue that he was probably more consistent with Cleveland than he was anywhere else. I, I think, like you said, he was on some of those lean teams where there wasn't a lot going on. Right. He. He was with Cleveland for, I think, only a handful of games during 2007 when they lost in the ALCS to Boston. And then he did almost 100 games and then was a a constant fixture for the team for a couple of years through 2012. He really was, for me personally, 2007, when that debacle happened, I was... I was 13, 14 years old. That was a real hard thing for a, a young guy to kind of comprehend and try to still keep the passion for the game alive, right? And I love to have these formative stories or these players that reignite my passion for the game over the years. And for a couple of seasons where the Guardians were a really bad to just middling baseball team, Shin Su Chu was that player for me that really kept the passion alive, right? There was this guy that no matter how good or bad the team was around him, he was just producing, producing, producing. And on top of that, he's still to this day and in, in since the turn of the century, one of the best outfielders the team has had not named Grady Sizemore and Michael Brantley. You know, you, you can go back and look at the, the home run totals and all of that, but just general production, Shinsu Chu was an extremely underrated player that I think just got swept under the rug by a lot of baseball during some really strong seasons just because he played on some bad teams in a weird division. Yeah, I completely agree. He, he kind of is in that that mold of uh, the list of names of like Michael Brantley, like you said, and some other names that I think of like Victor Martinez is Drupal Cabrera. Uh, of course, some of those don't exactly, you know, line up. Um, at the same time, but just that list of players during lean years, like you said, that you could watch the game and and you watch it for them because of how consistent they are and how good they are, even though they're on a bad team. Um, so for me, um, like I, I might have said it during the start, I think he's a little bit underrated, maybe a little bit underappreciated. Um, one of those forgotten players just because of how long he played after Cleveland. And of course, he made his only all-star team in 2018 uh, as a part of the Texas Rangers. But, you know, someone who you could look back on in a Cleveland uniform and and he would play damn near every day and was consistent, like you said. I I absolutely I love that you mention like the, the names like Victor Martinez and, and that era of of Cleveland baseball, right? You think about the last stretch of really good baseball from 2000 to 2007 before the team really kind of vanished for seven, eight years. But it's funny because I also associate Shinsu Chu with those good names, right? The Casey Blakes and, and that, but you sit here and you think about it and his teammates were actually guys like Ryan Garko, Lou Marson, Shelly Duncan, Guys you just don't think about anymore. So if that lends any context to who Shinsu Chu was for Cleveland fans and for the organization, 
really just look at any of the 2008 to 2012 baseball reference pages and just look at some of the names on those rosters and go, huh, I remember that guy. And then yeah, you remember him, but it, it's rough. <laughs> yeah. Um, one other thing I wanted to get to is uh, the rule changes for 2024. And before I say that, I probably should have pulled it up. But um, if I remember correctly, uh, if you get a pitcher up to warm up, then he has to come in for that inning. Uh, the pitch clock with runners on is being reduced from 20 seconds to 18 seconds. Uh, the runner's lane from home plate to first base is being widened into the infield grass. Um, so I just wanted to get your your thoughts on that because I feel they're a little bit ridiculous and unnecessary, but I am just one person. So what do you think? I'm glad you led with that because this is where my old man get off my lawn baseball takes really start to come in. Yeah. I don't like the pitch clock first and foremost. Like I, I understand why they did it and I'm okay with the pace of play. If baseball is getting more fans because games are two, two and a half hours instead of three, three and a half, then so be it. Like I'm never going to gatekeep the game and say, I, I remember when games were longer. Right. But at the same time, you accomplished your goal last year. Game time was down. Viewership and attendance was up in most markets why are you still tinkering? What needs to change still? What is the extra two seconds with runners in scoring position going to change except for pissing off a reliever and maybe squeezing in an extra ad from the seventh to ninth inning? I don't really understand it. I have some mild concern with extending the base paths down first baseline. I feel like that might lead to some extra collisions. Obviously, I don't have the data. They do. We'll, we'll see how that plays out in spring training. Um, I actually wasn't even aware that that was being tested in the minor leagues. It feels like most of those things that they've implemented have been practiced on since 2021, uh, in some AAA or, or high a league somewhere. Um, you know, it, it's at, at this point, it's like, just relax, let it work for two, three, four seasons before you make your changes. I, I think I read somewhere when they announced the rule change for the, if a pitcher comes out of the dugout to warm up between innings, he must face at least a batter, that new rule. Yeah. That that only happened 24 times in all of 2023? Eh, 24, eh, whatever. 30 teams play 162 games. That is like a 1% time of the thing. It, it, it added, on average, according to this, three minutes to game time. What, what are we doing here? <laughs> Yeah, looking at Yahoo Sports, just to get the full depth of rules that I was talking about, uh, they're reducing uh, when a pitcher arrives on the warning track, uh, they're reducing it, the inning break clock from 2 minutes, 15 seconds to 2 minutes. Um, there's fewer mound visits from 5 to 4 per team. Uh, teams average only 2.3 mound visits per game last season. So, I mean... That one's I guess they have they have room to work with, but it just also seems unnecessary. Um, defensive players won't be required to visit the mound to signal for a mound visit anymore. Um, as you just brought up, the batter requirement for pitchers, if they get up for an inning to warm up, they do have to face at least one batter. And as you say, MLB's review found 24 instances of that happening last season. Um, so seems really minute and a point that they didn't have to – Mess with put money down. I know two of those occurred in the World Series, but I would put money down that the other 22 were Gabe Kapler and the San Francisco Giants. Yeah. But why does the rest of the league have to suffer for that? Because Gabe Kapler was an insufferable manager. That he was. And um, I, I think for the rules, these rule changes for me, um, if, if you follow my Twitter, you know that I don't really care for Rob Manfred that much at all, really. I don't like him at all. I don't like his tenure. I don't like what he stands for. I don't like his comments about baseball. I don't like his ideals, despite being the commissioner of the sport. Um, so lastly, I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on it, because also really quickly, um, your uh, fellow writer at uh, Waiting for Next Year, Michael, uh, who's also been on the show, great guest. He kind of talked me off a ledge, and I was like, okay, you, you do make some good points uh, about last year's World Baseball Classic, about the uh, CBA and the minor leagues without any work stoppage. Uh, the new rules from last year, which I think 
even though I wasn't a huge fan of them, I think you do have to agree that they worked because the numbers back it up and the games were shorter and attendance was up as well, uh, especially with the um, automated strike zone being tried out in the minors as well. Um, so he did kind of talk me off of a ledge and I, I did respond back. You know, you did make some good points, but I think the overall feeling is that it's not that he isn't a good commissioner. It's just he seems to put himself in the way too much. And instead of letting baseball figure things out, he seems to want to assert himself in ways that don't really make sense like this. Why well, propose these rule changes a year after making other changes that have worked when these seem unnecessary? So, like I said, I'm not a big fan of him, but I wanted to get your your thoughts on him and his tenure as commissioner. Manfred is a big business guy, right? He excels in doing things like the World Baseball Classic, uh, promoting events like that, and to an extent getting some of these international games going on, right? The the exhibition series in, in Japan, Korea, starting to spread into some of the, the Spanish and Dominican and South American countries coming up. That's all well and good. I have bigger issues with his bad faith CBA negotiations, how we've even arrived at this point where the MLB can just impose new rules at will. I I think something that's not talked nearly enough about in the last collective bargaining agreement is how the MLB somehow got a competition committee, air quotes, installed into baseball, but it is stacked five to four five MLB executives and only four players union associates and its majority vote, the players can never strike down a rule change. The The players association issued a statement today saying that they were against the changes that Manfred made, even though the competition committee, all, all four player representatives voted no. But because Manfred and the CBA stacked it with an extra baseball executive, players are SOL. I don't know what to tell you. And if the players are against it, then I'm going to always side with the players in a in a labor dispute. And frankly, in, in this instance, it drives me absolutely insane. And then his other incessant tinkering, not only the, the rule changes that have been implemented, again, I don't think there's any reason to lower the pitch clock two seconds. I don't think there's any reason to do this between inning pitcher change. You're 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 not changing enough time of the game. I don't understand why you want to make the average game time an hour and 57 instead of two hours flat. But beyond even that, the evidence that they've been tinkering with the baseball is beyond me. The the dead baseballs, the juiced baseballs only being in specific parks. I remember last offseason reading an, an article from a scientist who was tracking these supposed juice baseballs and they were more commonly found in Yankee stadium during Aaron judges, MVP and AL record setting home run year than any other park in baseball. Like I, I need absolute transparency that everybody's playing on an even field. I hate how he handled the Houston Astros scandal. I full heartedly believe and have there's evidence out there that they did all of these things that they were accused of. And his response was, what, you want me to take away a hunk of metal? Referring to yeah. the game's penultimate reward? The commissioner's Named trophy? The commissioner. Everyone plays for? You're just yeah. going to dismiss it as a hunk of metal and say, ah, they cheated, they can have this one. I will hate the Astros for the rest of my life over that. I think every Dodgers fan would burn Houston to the ground if they could. Over just Rob Manfred's remarks alone, let alone not even including what Houston actually did. So there are little, little things that he's done that yes, are fine, but overall I find the bulk of it unforgivable and would welcome any new commissioner at any point. Yeah, I agree. And I'll be honest, like I said, I don't, I don't think he's a, I don't think he's a terrible commissioner. There's obviously good things that he's done for the game. And I am willing to accept that my outlook on him may be clouded by the things that I just simply don't like about him. Like you said, he is a big business person. And at the end of the day, if you're making the the owner's money, as we've seen in the NFL with Roger Goodell, they're going to keep you in office as their commissioner because at the end of the day, you work for them. So there's no telling how long he'll be in this position. Um, fans like you and I are just going to have to learn to accept it. We don't have to love it, but we will have to accept it. And I just hope for the future, at least that, you know, 
there's more good, um, you know, like the World Baseball Classic, last year's rule changes, et cetera, um, than the negative, because it seems that the negative stand out more than the positive, no matter what. Talk to me again when the next wave of TV deals include includes removing local blackouts. Then maybe I'll reevaluate. Oh, that that and player marketing. We could talk about marketing till the sun marketing? comes up. Exactly. <laughs> There's zero player mark. I mean, we should have Shohei Otani on every billboard. I mean, not only is he bringing he's bringing fans from another country. On top of that, I mean. At the end the of the day, he chose all league team. was better marketed than any MLB team was in 2023. Yeah. You know what was better marketed than the players? The simple three rule changes talking about how great they were. Like, give me a break. Every time I saw that commercial, I wanted to throw up. Or what about their failed FTX? Uh, yeah, that too. That was that was better marketed, but I'm pretty sure everybody involved in that is being sued to oblivion. So, uh, yeah. yeah, let's uh, let's improve the marketing. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't really know. Uh, my, my, my hands are tied. I, I'm, I don't, I don't know. It, it is what it is at this point. You just kind of have to learn to accept it. Like I said, we don't have to love it, but there's not really much we can do about it at this point. All right. And with that, we are out with another episode of believing guardians. Um, make sure you guys go follow Ethan on Twitter. Um, I do want to give you a chance to plug your Twitter. Like you said, you do uh, do work for waiting for next year. Good work. I did see your your rankings come out the other day. Uh, I definitely gave it a read, shared it as well. Um, but yeah, tell the people where they can find you on Twitter. Yeah, you can find me at poppunktethan, P-U-N-K-D. Uh, you can also find me tweeted out from the WFNYCLE page. Uh, as well as everybody else on our staff. We cover everything Cleveland, Browns, Guardians, Cavs, the whole gambit. Um, like Amari said, my top 30 prospects are rolling out. It's going to be a little bit more sporadic this year. I've got some things going on in my personal life that I'm away from the keyboard a little bit more. But once spring hits, our podcast will be back as well. The WFNY Cornercast with our site host, Joe Gerberry, and our friend Mitch, Mitch the Doctor, soon to be the doctor. Uh, so we'll hopefully have our voices back out on the airwaves on a regular basis ourselves. But Amari, thank you so much for having me, man. It's always a pleasure. Of course. Like I said, I enjoy it when you guys come on. Of course, I've, I follow uh, a good portion of you guys and, and had a couple of you on the show as well. Like I said, you guys are smarter than me. So I like to get you guys on here to get your opinion. And the fans don't want to hear me ramble. So I like to get you guys on here. But uh, like I said before, thank you so much for coming on. Um, for Ethan, I am Amari McPherson. This has been another episode of Believe in Guardians. And we will catch you next week. Peace. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.